Good morning. So glad that you've chosen to be here with us for worship this morning. Uh, uh, I was reading an article this week that was actually goes back a couple of months, but it was very recent. It was from this year anyway. And it was uh, USA Today had done a poll and it was asking some questions about uh, people's stress level. And so people in the United States were supposed to rate their own stress level. And the way that they had termed it was one to ten you're supposed to rate. One being the lowest, ten being the highest. And so what they came up with is basically people who rated at eight, nine, and ten were an extreme amount of stress. So they called it high level. I think five, six, and seven, somewhere in there was moderate and then down below. And what they found, though, is 67% of people in America today would say that they uh, rate in the moderate to high level of stress in their life. And I think it was almost 40% would put themselves in the high level. And rating it like an eight, nine or a ten in their life. And so I started thinking about that picture. And then as you read on the article, it was kind of interesting as you read it said uh, it talked about how people deal with stress in their life. And it was different based on age bracket. Age groups made it a little different. Uh, The older generation that said would deal with stress by spending time with friends and family and then eating. And then uh, younger generation would would deal with stress by uh, playing video games and listening to music and then spending time with their friends and family. Those are the common ones. But uh, that's not even really the point I'm getting at is, is, is necessarily on age brackets and what they, how we deal with it and those kind of things. But what I want us to think about is just this picture that 67% of people would say that they're dealing with a moderate to high level of stress and they're trying to deal with it in some way. And so uh, what we see with with most people is is if we're honest at different times, that's higher than others. But we're dealing with things that are coming at us in our life that cause us stress and anxiety and frustrations and all sorts of things that come up. Uh, As I was thinking about this idea and even reading this and even preparing for what we're going to talk about this morning, I went back and looked. It was in 2011, actually in January of 2011, we did five weeks on how we deal with anxiety in different areas. And more so than anything I've ever preached on in the whole time I've been here, I had so many people come and talk to me about those sermons to to the point of people like two years later. Hey, so and so gave me this sermon and it was really helpful and it was really and all we did was simply look at different areas uh, that cause us stress and anxiety and then look at what God's word says about it. And so it's not surprising to me that people go, man, that was really helpful. Because when we see what God's promises are and what he says and how he says to look at it. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to begin a new series that's going to go for four weeks. And we're going to talk about a different, uh, basically a way that we can kind of filter through what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with, and and speak the truth of God's word to it. And so it's similar to what we did a few years back uh, when we did this series before. But the difference is being I want us to think through how we help one another how we're being equipped as a body to speak the truth to each other when we're dealing with these things. And so what we're going to do is, as you'll see in your bulletin, it says that the sermon title is, is the four G's. That's the series we're doing. And I want to tell you where that comes from and what I mean when I say that. And I'll tell you why we're calling it that in just a second. But there's a guy named Tim Chester who wrote a book several years back. If you don't know that name, he's a pastor. Uh, he's a professor. He, he actually lives in the UK and he's written several books Uh, I've read a couple of his books and found them very helpful. Uh, He's very good at at talking about the missional church and what that looks like. But then also, how do we apply the gospel? And in this book, what Tim Chester came up with, it's nothing new. Just tell you, he didn't 
just nothing groundbreaking in what he did or how he did it. It's just taking things that scripture clearly teaches it and kind of putting it in a way that we can handle, that we can hold on to. And then we can speak this to each other. And the way he did it is he talked about God as four things. And that's where this idea of the four G's come from. You see these all throughout scripture. And so what he says is this, is that first that God is great. God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. That's where the four G's come from. That's why we're calling it that. Those four G's of who God is and what he looks like. And so what he did is he started to look at these things and he talked about areas of stress and frustration and things we're dealing with. And then he clearly connected to, uh, we can kind of trace back to the things we're dealing with. We're not trusting in one of those four areas about who God is. And so it's very helpful when you start to think of that way. It gives you kind of a grid to think through things and be able to speak the truth of God's word to it. And so kind of the way he looked at it is, is God is great. And if we're really believing that God is great, then we don't have to be in control. And you think of how much of our stress and our anxiety and frustrations and things that come into our life are because we're trying to control everything, Uh, whether it's our own life or what's going on in the world, or people in our lives, or in our families, and we're trying to control situations. And so he says, when we see that God is great, we realize that we don't have to be in control. Or he says that God is glorious, and when we see that God's glorious, we don't have to fear others. And you can, tra- you can trace back a lot of your stress and your anxiety over what other people are going to think of me, and what that looks like, and fearing other people's opinions. The third one, God is good, is we don't have to look elsewhere Uh, for satisfaction in our life, that God himself is good. And when we have God, we have everything that we need. And so the things that we try to plug into those holes, often the idols of our heart that speaks directly to that. And then the last one, God is gracious. And because God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. And the ways that we try to do that, the ways we try to validate ourselves all the time, if we really see that God's gracious, we don't have to do that. And so we're going to walk through those the next four weeks. And my hope is as we do that, that this becomes very uh, practically helpful for you. Uh, We're going to have either next week or the following week. It may even be the last week as we end this up. We're going to have cards that go with us. Uh, diagnostic questions that kind of help you to think through, am I doing this? Am I not trusting that God is great or that God is good or is that he's gracious? And so it will help you to be able to kind of diagnose yourself, but also it will be something we can use in our community groups where you can ask each other these questions and then go, we're not trusting that God is gracious or we're not trusting that God is good. And so it's very practically helpful for what we're called to do as a body, which is we are to speak the truth to one another. Uh, Oftentimes we think of evangelism. Evangelism is proclaiming the good news of who God is. We think of believers telling unbelievers. But evangelism is really also believers telling believers. We say this often, but we need to have the gospel preached to us daily. We need to hear this over and over. And so hopefully this will become a very practical tool that we can use together with one another, not just here on Sunday morning, but as we go and as we meet in our groups and throughout the week in all different ways. And then it helps to train you just to see everything through the lens of who God is and what he's done. And so that's where we're going with this idea. And so today we're going to look at this picture of that God is great and how that helps to deal with uh, that we don't have to be in control of everything. And the way we're going to look at that is in 1 Peter chapter 4, the very last verse of chapter 4 in the beginning of chapter 5. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 658. If you want to follow along with the same uh, version that I'm reading or you're welcome to use your own Bibles. Like we always say, if you need a Bible, 
uh, take one. If you know somebody that needs one, please take them. That's what they're there for. And so let's read what it says in First Peter chapter 4, verse 19 through 5, 7. And then we'll pray and then we're going to look at this idea of God is great and how we see that here with what Peter says. And so verse 19 says, therefore, actually, before I even read that, let me just back up for just a second. I always say this context is so important. And so we're jumping into the end chapter four of first Peter. Let me just set the scene for you real, real briefly. But Peter's writing to churches, very new churches that are dealing with all kinds of issues. They're being persecuted. And so they've come into this understanding of who God is and what he's done for Jesus. And they're growing and they're seeing things. But then there's problems. There's issues. They're being persecuted and they're struggling and different things are happening. And they're kind of like, what's going on? We didn't think it was going to be like this. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them in the midst of their struggles. Right. He even starts his letter off that way. He's telling them this is great and you've come to faith and it's wonderful. But even if for a little while you're being uh, uh, struggling with these various trials, he's going, even God can work in this. And so he's encouraging them in the midst of their struggles. And that's basically what he's getting at in this letter. So as we jump in, have that in your mind. Now look at 419 and we'll start there. So therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with the humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray and then we're going to look at that passage together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for just that you are great and that we can trust you and that uh, thankfully we don't have to be in control. And so I pray this morning that as we work through this uh, passage here today, this uh, your eternal word that you have inspired, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us. We ask that your spirit would move freely in this place to apply it to our hearts and our minds as we we confess we can't do this without you. And so we need you in this place, leading and guiding our time. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. So as we do this, as we think about it, often I like to do three questions. That's kind of the way I think and as I go. But the questions are just simply this. There's a problem here. And so what's the problem that Peter's identifying? So what's the problem? Second, what is the answer to deal with it according to this scripture and what it tells us? And then lastly, why does it work or why can we trust that it works? Right. So there's a problem. How do we deal with it and why can we trust that it works? And so as you begin right at the beginning in 419 and he says to them, therefore, let those who are suffering according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so when you read in first Peter and what we know about it and what Peter's addressing is that they're struggling and they're suffering and they're frustrated and they're getting beaten down by what's going on. And they're starting to question that God's really got their best interest at heart. Uh, you, you can see them starting to kind of waver a little bit. And so he's, he's writing in there. And I think part of the problem that's here is they're not trusting that God is great. Right. That's, that's what we're talking about today, that what happens when we do see that God is great 
But what happens when we don't see that God is great? And so I think the picture that you begin to see here is they're not trusting that God is great, that they really can see how God is working and all the things they're dealing with because they're dealing with a lot of hard issues right in front of them. And so when he says to them, uh, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good, he's basically saying to them, trust God, trust God with even what's happening right in front of you right now. Now, I know as I say that and go, well, the problem is they're not trusting God and answers to trust God and go, well, that's great. Uh, Oftentimes, if you're a believer, you would say, I agree with that. Yes, that's right. But that's not really that helpful. Right. Maybe maybe if you're honest, you go for somebody to say to you, you just need to trust God. And you go, I know, but that's difficult. And sometimes that can be hard and that can seem almost very shallow when you just say, well, just trust God. But I want us to think about what he tells us. I want us to go deeper than just saying trust God. I think he helps show you some things (coughs) that help you to see that and to understand how that works. And so look at what he says in verse five and verse six there. By the way, I'm really skipping over one to four in a lot of ways. Right. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. He's talking about elders shepherding the flock and what that looks like. My hope is. By what we're doing as we walk through this series and we're equipping you that that's what we're doing. We're helping to equip you so that we can do that together. Right. That we're living out verses one through four by seeing what this looks like and then beginning to do that together. And so I'm not skipping over those things, but we're really going to focus our time on that verse 19 and then really five, six and seven. And so look at what he says in five and six. He says, you are younger. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. With humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And so there's a picture here that Peter begins to identify. You're not trusting God. But then when we go deeper of what that looks like on why they're not trusting God, we're kind of taking it down a level, going more foundational. The problem of not trusting God is their pride. Right. He tells them here three times in two verses to humble themselves, humble yourselves under the elders, humble yourselves together and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He says it over and over and over. And I think part of the issue that you see here is what he's saying is, is they're operating out of a stance, the opposite of humility, which I would say is pride. Right. If you've ever thought about this, when you start to think about this picture of what it's supposed to be and what uh, uh, what's going on. And we say, well, they're not operating in humility. Then the opposite of that would be pride. I want you just to think about what the definition of pride is. Sometimes we, we hear a word and we say, I know what that means. And you think about it. But then you hear the definition of it and it kind of goes, oh, wow, that really says a lot. But when you read the definition of pride, what it tells us is it's a sense of what is due to oneself or one's position or character. What is due to me. Right. And so when you have Peter saying, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I can almost hear him. (coughs) Excuse me. That did not sound good. (laughs) Mouth's too dry. Excuse me. I can almost hear Peter saying to them, uh, uh, addressing what's going on here by saying, you need to humble yourself. You can almost hear the people that he's writing to saying, no good could possibly come from this. Or, or, or maybe something along the lines of this is not the way it's supposed to be, right? Here, here you came and you preached the gospel and we heard who Jesus is and what this looks like and what we're going to do and what we're going to see. And then all of a sudden there's all this suffering that comes. 
I could see myself, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else, I could see myself in the midst of that going, this is not the way it's supposed to go, right? Or how in the world is God working in the midst of that? It's not supposed to be like this. And when we start to say things like that, it's not supposed to be like this, or, or no good could possibly come from what's going on right now, it's a very, very prideful thing to say. It's a very arrogant thing to say. And I want you to think about why that's the case when we start to talk that way. We're, we're saying, I see how things should go and they're not going the way I see them to be. Right? You ever do that in your life? You ever have things come in that you struggle with and you go, well, it's not supposed to be like this. I, I can think of a lot of different times where I have that attitude or maybe I start to think that way. Uh, one of the most vivid in my life was being 18 years old and applying to colleges, being a senior in high school. And I applied to three colleges and two were backups, right? Texas A&M was the one I wanted to go to, and I knew it. And I got my acceptance to the other two first, and then I got a letter from A&M that said, hey, you're on a wait list. And I went, whoa, wait a second. That is not the way this is supposed to go. I had already decided that's where I'm going. I have been brainwashed since I could walk that I was going to Texas A&M. That was, that was, I didn't, there's, that's where you're going. And so all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, that's not the way this is supposed to go. And so all of a sudden, for months, it was like, now what? Now what do I do? And how is this going to work? And the, the stress and the anxiety, and those are not a huge thing. It, when you're 18 years old, that's the biggest thing in the world. Looking back on it now, it wasn't quite as big as I made it to be. But what happened is it got to the end of the summer, or close to the end of the summer, and I got a thing that said, hey, by the way, you were on the wait list, and now you're in. And all this anxiety and stress and everything that went with it was for nothing. But even had I not gone to school there, it was still my arrogance that's saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to happen. This is where I was going to go. And so what I'm doing when I do that is I'm, I'm saying, this is how it's supposed to happen. And I'm telling God, no, no, you messed up. This is the way it's supposed to go. And so you can hear that example and you can fill in your own life, whatever that looks like. I'm sure there's been different times in your life where you said, this, no good can come from this. Or maybe you said, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Uh, maybe you get passed over for a job promotion. You go, wait a second. Maybe it's a job promotion that you actually deserve. And you go, or worse yet, you get let go. You're doing a great job and you're working really hard and they do layoffs and you get let go. And you go, wait, a second. that's not fair. That's not the way this is supposed to happen. Or you look at your career and where you thought you were going to be and you're not quite there yet. And you go, wait a second. That's not my plan. That's not the way I was going to have this go. Or maybe it's something more serious than that. Maybe someone in your life becomes very ill or you lose someone very close to you and you go, wait a second, God, that's not the way I thought this was going to happen or I thought this was to go. And when we do that, we're taking a place of pride, right? That's, that's what the definition says, a sense of what is due to oneself. And so all of a sudden you get let go from this job and you go, well, wait a second, that's not what's due to me. I'm supposed to have this job and have this position or have this whatever it is. And so we start to say, no, 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 it can't be like that. Or maybe we take it to the step of saying in the moments of despair and really hard times, no good could come from this. So I was thinking, I love this, this uh, term. I heard it. I'm, I'm not taking credit for it. I heard Dr. Tim Keller say this once, but he said, there's times in our life where you need to lay down your assumed omniscience. And, and what he's saying is omniscience means to be all knowing, right? There's only one that is all knowing and that is God. And so when we start to assume omniscience, we, we are taking the place of God and it is the ultimate form of pride. It is the ultimate form of arrogance that I know when we say things like no good could possibly come from this. 
What we're saying is I know every single possible outcome that can come from what just happened in my life, and none of them are good. Do you see how prideful it is to speak that way or to think that way? Now, I don't want to beat you up with that because when you are in the middle of a really difficult time, you can't see how it's going to work out oftentimes. And I realize that. And so I don't want to belittle the difficult things you walk through and go, oh, you just need to get over it. Because there is time for mourning and frustration and those things that are there. You see that throughout Scripture. You see that a lot in the Psalms. And so I don't say that lightly. There are difficult times when you don't see it. But when we say no good could come for this, or this is not supposed to happen this way, we're really taking a very prideful stance of, I see how all this could work out. And so the problem that I see here when we read through what Peter's telling them is he's telling them to suffer according to God's will and entrust your souls to a faithful creator. He's reminding them that they're not seeing that God is great. They are forgetting how great God is. When I say I can't see how this could possibly work out, I'm forgetting how big God is. And so that takes us to the second thing of what is the answer? How do we deal with it? And so he tells us how we deal with it. If you look at verse six and seven. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right. Or we could go back to 419 and he says, well, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. And we get back to what I started with. Well, just trust God. (laughs) That's the answer. You're not trusting God, so trust God. But I want you to see the steps that he tells you to take. He doesn't say just trust God, although he says that he then tells you more than that. He tells you in verse six and verse seven to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and then cast all your anxieties on him. And so that the first step is that humility of humbling yourself. That's the first step when we're going to trust God, especially in the midst of very difficult times. And so he says that you have to humble yourself. And I like the way he says it in verse 19, because he says those who are suffering entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And think about that picture of of him throwing out, by the way, entrust yourself to your creator. I think that's something that we maybe forget. We, We assume we know it intellectually, but we don't know it in our heart. The creator of all things that holds all things together. And so we forget how great God is. That God spoke everything into existence and he holds you up by the, the power of his word. If you if it wasn't for God keeping you in his mind, you would cease to be. And yet we want to say there's no possible way this could work out. And we're forgetting how great God is uh, in his book. Tim Chester tries to illustrate this. And it's actually a quote in your bulletin today, if you see on that very first page. But the way he talks about the vastness of the universe to talk about God speaking things into existence, if you read that As you came in this morning, but he says this traveling at the speed of light, which is one hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second. We can't really even grasp that. But then he tries to help you grasp it because then he says that would encircle the earth seven times in one second. So get that idea. That's how fast you're moving. Or you would fly past the moon in two seconds. And so it's one, two. We just passed the moon. Right. We're going that fast. And so he says at that speed, it would take 4.3 years to reach our next nearest star and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. And so we can't even fathom just that. 
But then he goes on to say there are thought to be at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe and it would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you still have only just begun to explore God's universe. All this was created when God simply spoke a word. And so when you think about the vastness of the universe, it helps you to at least start to get a handle on the greatness of God. That he spoke those things into existence. That vastness he spoke into existence. It makes me think of uh, Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, uh, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And then God goes on to say, uh, what can you really do for me? Right? And you think about that picture of what God's saying is that I made all that. I spoke that in my creativity and my power. I uphold it. I have it. And so what exactly are you going to do for me that I can't do for myself? And so when we start to fit that into there's no possible way this could work for good. God. God's going, really? Right. Have you noticed how big I am? Right. Because it tells us in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, that he made that vastness, that bigness to show you how great he is, to show you that that's just a little bit like me. And so when you start to think of it in those terms and what he's saying, it really is greatly humbling, is it not? When he says, humble yourself under your faithful creator, the one who spoke all that into existence. It's a beautiful picture that helps bring you to that place. Of seeing that, you know what it says in Isaiah 66, verse two, after he says that the heavens uh, is my throne and the earth is my footstool. But then in Isaiah 66, verse two, he says, but this is the one to whom I look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right. And so what God tells us in what he says is, is get over yourself and trust me. I'm the one that holds this together. There's nothing that you're doing that I think God's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands. Oh, what are they going to do next? Right. He says, there's nothing. This is my footstool. I know exactly what I'm doing. You trust me. And he says, this is the one to whom I'm looked, the one who's humble and contrite in spirit that trusts God. But there's a humility that comes for you to be able to do that. And so he says, humble yourself. Now, be careful when we talk about humility, because humility can be dangerous. You know, wait a second. You just said, humble yourself. And I said, well, wait a second, because humility can be dangerous. And, and the reason I say that is when we start to think about it is, is that we can. There's a fine line with true humility. Right. As soon as you start to go, man, I'm pretty humble. Oh, dang it. Right. Blew it. Right. The second we start to slip into that type of thinking. And so what can happen is we go, oh, no, it's all God. It's all God. It's all God. And then in our heart, we're going, yeah, God chose me because I'm so humble. Right. It starts to create it's the back door to self-righteousness or it's the back door to works-based righteousness. God uh, cares for me and loves me because I'm just a really humble guy. And you start to think that way. And so it's, it's so I say it's tricky when you start to think that way. C.S. Lewis says there's, a, again, the other quote that was in there. I try to put both of those in there. I don't usually use two quotes like that. But he says it so well. He talks about when you start to on that road to humility and what it really looks like. He says it, it will be someone who's not thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Right? And so it's to realize your heart. It's to realize that the back door there is to think I'm pretty humble. 
oh, no, I'm not. I'm extremely prideful. I want to tell you how humble I am, right? And that's always kind of there under the surface. And so true humility only comes when we begin to see our standing apart from God. Apart from God, I'm going to be sinful and self-centered. Apart from God, I'm going to make it all about me and I'm going to be the sinner instead of God being the sinner. And so true humility comes when you read like Ephesians 2 and it says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Christ. Right. Apart from God invading your life and his spirit and pointing you to Jesus, you're going to be self-centered. You're going to be prideful. And it's only in trusting God and putting it all on him that you're ever going to begin to have a true humility. And the hard part is our culture says the exact opposite. You don't need anyone to tell you. You don't need God. You can do whatever you want. Put your mind to it. You're the, the master of your own fate. Right? And the Bible says, no, it's, it's all God. It's, it's him that does it, not you. And so the only way that we get to a true humility is seeing that we are sinful apart from God. That we are self-centered and we are in desperate need of a Savior to come in our life and to bring us to life. And that's what Jesus has done. And so it pushes us to see that it's all him and nothing else. And so the picture that he tells us here is that you have to see that. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and then cast your anxieties on him. And I want you to see that picture, that correlation there of seeing that God is great and how that leads you to being able to cast your anxieties on him. See, when you're trying to control every bit of what's going on, You're trying to control everyone around you. You cannot cast your anxieties on him because you're trying to do it yourself. You can't let him take it when you're trying to deal with every bit of it yourself. So you go, no, no, I got it. I got this. I got that. And he's going, just give it to me. And you go, no, no, I got it. Right. And, And you can't cast your anxieties on him until you humble yourself and say, I can't deal with this. I need you to deal with it, God. And that's the only way. And so you have to see who God is and what he's doing and how he's working. And you have to see his greatness. You have to see that God is great to be able to cast your anxieties on him. When we don't, when we try to do it ourselves, it's an absolute disaster. I can give you lots and lots of examples, personally, your own life, what's going on. But the one that immediately came to mind is, is Abraham and Sarah, in, in the Old Testament, if you know that story, God comes to Abraham and he says, you're going to have a child. It's going to be the son of the promise. I'm going to do these great things. Your child. And it says Abraham believed him, right? Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then 10 years go by. Where's the kid, God? Like, what's going on? And so what do they do? They immediately decide we can control this. We will do this ourselves. And Sarah says, why don't you have a child with my maidservant, Hagar? And he goes, Okay, yeah, maybe that's the way God's working, right? Maybe that's how we should do this. And so what happens? They have a child with a maidservant, and then all of a sudden Sarah hates her. She's jealous. And now Abraham is torn that he's got this child that he loves, but there's issues in his family, and it compounds all the problems when he decides to try to control it. Instead of casting his anxieties, casting what's going on to God and saying, I'm going to leave this to you, I'm going to be hold fast to the promises you've given me, he tries to do it himself, and it causes all kinds of problems. And that's what happens when we do that. When we decide I'm going to take it on myself and I'm going to do it and I'm going to to take control of this situation, we can't give it to him. We're trying to do it. By the way, all the things that are going on in the Middle East right now, that's that's what God said. The reason for that is because Abraham decided to go and have a child with Hagar. You're not aware of that. The fighting that's going on right now is between the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac, and they're still fighting today. 
And so you see the consequences even today in what's going on in the world by saying, I'm going to control this and do this myself. And so you see that picture so vividly. And so when you see here what he says in verse five about God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You see how this begins to fit together. He's telling us uh, to quit acting like you have it all figured out. Quit acting like you see all the ways that this possibly is going to work out. And trust me. This is the one to whom I'm looked, the one who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right. What God's saying is this is the one to whom I look is the person that takes me at my word. And trust me, he says, so humble yourself. See who you are in my creation that, yes, I love you. And yes, you're dearly loved. But I am the one that is sovereign in control of these things and humble yourself and give it to him. Quit assuming, you know, how everything's supposed to work out. We all do this. We do this all the time. And every time we do that, that's what I want you to see, is we're not seeing how great God is. We're putting him in this little box that he can only work in this way, and so I've got to go take control of this. We're not seeing that God is great. And that's our issue when we start to look at it. And so you have to humble yourself and see the greatness of God. Now, now the problem that comes with that, and this is why this works, we're getting to the last thing. That's the second part, is humble yourself, see that God is great. But the reason that works is not just because God is vast and it's great. It's not just looking at the stars in the sky and going, man, look at how big they are. See, a lot of people will see that and then go, yeah, God is great and he's big, but how could he possibly care about what's going on in my life? Right? I've got all these little things that I'm dealing with, and yes, God is great, but he doesn't have time to deal with me. Again, that's not saying how great God is, that he can deal with it, but you can see where that comes up. And so what's the answer to this? Why does this work when we see it? The why that we can trust what he's telling us. And it's in verse seven. He says, cast all your anxieties on him. Humble yourself. Cast your anxieties on him. And then he says, because he cares for you. He's not just great. He's not just big and majestic, but he actually cares for what's going on in your life. He cares for you. And so you go, man, well, you can see that in that we're his creation and he's created us. But but even if God just spoke and said, I care for you and things are great. And he just speaks that from heaven. You still go, well, yeah, but he's big, but he's distant. But see, he doesn't just say it. He doesn't just say, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. He proves it. Right? He absolutely proves it in every way when he decides to step down from his throne and come and walk with us in the midst of everything we're dealing with. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to leave my throne and I'm going to come down and I'm going to experience everything that you're experiencing. And I'm going to go right through it. But I'm going to trust God completely and fully the whole way. I'm going to always see that God is great. I'm going to always humble myself under his hand. I'm going to walk straight through it. And then I'm going to go to the cross and I'm very literally going to let you cast all your anxieties on me. Right? Because that's what it says. First Corinthians five. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God. And he proved without a shadow of a doubt that he cares. And so when God says, cast your anxieties on me, he's not saying distant up in heaven. Look at how great I am. Just trust me. He says, I will come down and prove to you how much I love you. And so when he says, cast your anxieties on me because he cares for you, he's proven it. He's absolutely proven it on the cross. He took our sins. He took your stress. 
He took your anxiety. He took your deepest, darkest failures. He took every mistake you've ever made. And he says, I will take it and I will become it. And I will bear God's wrath on your behalf. And so you can give it to me and you can trust that I will deal with it. That God is that great. And so the picture, when we start to think about we, everything's under, out of control or this is happening and I'm not sure, God says, just stop. I've got all of it. I am working in every single way that is going on. And I've proven it to you that I care in the way that I've come down and I've taken it on myself and I've paid for it on the cross. And so when we start to think about those areas of our life, and, and this is something that's an ongoing process. You're not going to hear me say this and walk out and just go, oh, I'm not trusting God's great. God's great now and everything's good. So it's a daily thing. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to be asking those questions together, but walking that out together each day and talking about those things, seeing where we're not trusting that God is great. And then he will be faithful to continue to come and, and apply that to your heart and your life. And when you see that, it says the Spirit comes and he gives witness to it. And he goes, yes, God is great. And yes, God loves you. And yes, he's got this even right now. And so as we begin to walk forward in that, I hope that you see that so clearly, the greatness of the God we serve. And it's not just a far off God, but it's a God who enters into our suffering and proves it for us on the cross. So let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us, what it shows us, what it reminds us of, uh, that you do care for us, that even in the midst of whatever is going on right now. And I know so many here today as we sit here are dealing with very real difficulties in their life and the stress that that presents and the anxiety that wants to creep up when that happens. And I pray that you would help us to see afresh today how great you are, how, how massive you are, how much you love us and care for us, that we can trust you, that we can put our anxieties on you knowing that you care for us. And we thank you for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.